For uh, 18 years, I've taught in the public high school. And um, one of the things that we do annually is we take our junior class and we bring them to an assembly. And in this assembly, we talk to them about their brand. They are they're taught how to self-promote, how to pad their resume so that when they graduate from high school and they turn in that college application or that job application, they'll look really, really good. And we want them to participate in extracurricular activities. We want them to be doing things in their community. And, and while it sounds good on paper, it's the perfect storm for anxiety. One of the results of this practice has been that students now more than ever are struggling with anxiety. As freshmen are showing up on college campuses, they're frequently walking out of the classroom, going to the counselor and telling them, I'm anxious, I'm struggling, I'm having trouble, I don't know how to deal with it. Many have described this generation as the most anxious generation. It's reached a proportion now where it's considered a crisis. Some would even call it a public health crisis. And if you think that you are immune to it, then you need to look a little closer at your own heart. Anxiety is common to the human condition. But if there was ever a group of people who had a right, if you will, to be anxious, it was the church of the dispersion. Peter writes to the persecuted church. Most historians believe he would have been writing when Nero was emperor in Rome. And if you remember, during Nero's reign, Rome had burned. And they needed somebody to blame for it. They needed a scapegoat. So Nero chose the Christians. They were the perfect patsy. And so the Christians were dragged from their homes, thrown to prisons, put on spikes, covered in tar, lit on fire. They were persecuted all over the Roman Empire. The people were suffering. It's to this suffering church that Peter writes. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, explaining the purpose of his letter. He says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He's writing to them as they are experiencing grief over various trials. And he says this, That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He lets them know there's a purpose in your suffering. Your suffering is your opportunity to show that your faith is the real deal. It's the genuine article. It's going to survive the fire. But the only way for us to demonstrate that our faith is true is on the path of suffering. Now, you can imagine experiencing rampant persecution, not knowing if today is going to be the day that you're going to be dragged from your home, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, not even knowing if people will be willing to do business with you 
so that you can provide for your family. That's the perfect storm for anxiety. And it's into that that Peter reminds them that God has given them an antidote for anxiety. I want to focus today just on two verses at the end of Peter's first epistle. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. And let's see if that works. Wow, it worked. It's a Christmas miracle. (laughs) It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. Now, I want you to focus on these two verses right here. It's a short passage today. I would challenge you to try to memorize it by the time the service is over. I'm going to put it in front of you several times. It's pretty simple. Try to pay attention to the passage. It's God's word that has the power. But the very first thing I want you to notice is that he wants us to get to this point where we have let go of our cares, where we've cast our cares on him. Peter wants the church to learn to live without anxiety. He wants them to learn to live a life where that that care, that worry is placed firmly into the hands of the one who can, in fact, deal with it. In order to help them with that, he gives three exhortations to the believers. And the first one is right there at the start of verse 6. He says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Look at the verse again. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, if you've spent any amount of time in church, you know that whenever you see that word, therefore, you're supposed to ask, well, good. You guys get an A. Very good. You pass the quiz. That's right. We need to know what it's there for. And the answer always comes in the previous verse, right? We write therefore because we're making a conclusion based on something that we've already said. And in verse five, he had said this. I'm just gonna look at the end of the verse there. He said that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter is trying to make it explicitly clear there's two teams that you can be on. There's the proud Those who hold on to their status, their reputation, their honor, and they defend it at all costs. And there's the humble. You can either be proud and God will humble you, or you can be humble and God will exalt you. Therefore, his conclusion is, I choose team humble. I want to be on that team. I want to be on the team that God is for, that God is with. This was the practice of Jesus' life. Jesus is the example of what a life lived in humility looks like. In John 5, he teaches this. In John 5, verse 41, he explains this. He says, I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Jesus was right. Jesus was living in a culture that was an honor culture. 
Everything about their culture was based upon your reputation, your ability to do your work, your ability to buy and to sell was based on your reputation. Your reputation was your most valuable possession. And Jesus says, I don't receive honor from men. I don't receive glory from men. What he's saying is, I don't buy and sell in your economy. I don't trade what you're trading. That's not where I get glory from. If somebody comes and they self-promote, they come in their own name, they build up a reputation for themselves, they make sure everybody knows their name, and they speak that name with honor. He said, you'll receive that person, but you won't receive me. Think about it. Jesus isn't out there self-promoting. He's not out there making sure everybody knows who he is and what he's doing. He did not receive honor from men. The Pharisees got this. They understood this. At the end of his earthly ministry, they, they come to him to ask him a question. In Matthew 22, verse 16, it says that the, they sent their disciples along with Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. The religious leaders of the day notice something different about Jesus. He doesn't care what people think. He doesn't show partiality. He doesn't say, oh, well, this person over here, they're prominent in our culture, and so I'm going to treat them differently. This person over here is lowly in our culture, and so I'm going to ignore them. Jesus didn't buy and sell in the economy of honor that existed at his time. And so Peter reminds us to look at the example of Jesus Christ and to humble ourselves, to let go of reputation of honor. This is the example that Jesus Christ set for us. Do you remember what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed? He not only instituted our new covenant, but before that, he did something that was preposterous to his disciples. It says that he knelt down, girded himself with a towel, and he washed the disciples' feet. Now, now you might think, okay, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the big deal? The big deal is this. That's the lowliest job in that culture. That, that's a job that you wouldn't wish on anyone. That's a job that everybody frowned upon. Nobody respected. When you did that, people would look down on you. That was something humiliating. And remember what Jesus said after he did it? We, we find it. In John chapter 13, he says this in verse 14. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Don't seek prominence, seek humility. Don't look for the best place at the table. Look at the lowest place at the table. Humble yourself. I've been meditating on what it was that, that Jesus did just over this Christmas season as I've, I think about him coming as a baby, needing to be held, needing to be swaddled, needing to be nursed, needing to be cared for. God in human flesh 
completely and utterly dependent upon a human for their nurture and care. I don't, I don't think that we can comprehend that, but I want you to try. Use your sanctified imagination to imagine God coming as a baby. I want, I want you to meditate on it from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. I, I want you to realize that what you have as a new creation is you have the mind of Christ. His spirit lives within you. His mind is in you. And so Paul reminds the Philippians, let this mind be in you. In other words, you need to depend on that mind. When, when your heart tells you, you need to self-promote, you need to exalt yourself, you need to stand up for your reputation, that's a lie. That's not how your Savior lived his life. And so instead, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And, and what, did, what did he do? He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself of no reputation. Just think about what that means for a second. You see, when Jesus lowered himself, he lowered himself from infinite glory to fallen humanity. When he asks us to humble ourselves, such a much smaller move. I don't even know if it is a move. Maybe it's just open up your eyes and realize who you really are. We're supposed to follow the example of the author and the finisher of our faith who, who humbled himself, who took on this lowly position. But what we're called to do can't even compare with the infinite step that Jesus took to put on human flesh. He let go of every divine right. This is really the heart of what John 5 is talking about. Jesus made himself of no reputation. See, it didn't make sense to the world that, rem oh, that was around him. Remember his brothers when they came to him and they asked him if he was going to go down to Passover? And he said, no. It didn't add up. It didn't compute. They said, you need to go to Jerusalem. You need to let everybody know who you are. Didn't make sense to the world. Why don't you promote? Jesus would heal people and tell them, don't tell anybody. Jesus wasn't out there telling his disciples, go out and declare to everyone that I am God. When they figured it out, he said, don't tell anyone. Wait, sit on that. Hold on to it. He made himself intentionally of no reputation. That's our model. Think about how we live. If there's anything positive about our week that we did, 
the world needs to know, right? And we have so many ways to declare to the world the wonder that is me, right? I can, I can tweet about it. I can post about it. I can share a story just so the world can know how awesome I am. I would say it's even worse. Our honor culture is even worse than the one that Jesus lived in. If you're not out there promoting yourself, what are you doing? The world needs to know that you're such a wonderful person. And one of the lies that Satan whispers in our own heart is that you're only as effective as your reputation allows you to be. You need honor before people so they'll listen to you. And Jesus' life screams the opposite. The one who is humble is most effective for the kingdom. You see, what Jesus' life proves to us is that when we admit our weakness, then we're effective. When we let go of reputation and status and worldly accolades, then we're useful. He made himself of no reputation. And why is that? Because the way up is the way down. Jesus sought anonymity. He didn't seek fame. He didn't seek to be known. He says this in Matthew 20. He's talking to his disciples and they had this constant struggle. They wanted to know what the hierarchy was, right? Jesus, there's 12 of us. Only one of us can be number one. Who's your number one? And, and Jesus constantly taught against this. It must have broken his heart to hear this constant bickering about who's the best, who gets to sit in the front seat. But listen to what Jesus says to them in Matthew 20, verse 26. He says, it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way up is the way down. You want to be great? Get on your knees and serve. It, the, the way that Jesus lived is he did not come to be served. He didn't come so that men would come to him and serve him and wait on him hand and foot. But rather, what did he come? He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our model. That's our forerunner. That's the race that's been set before us. The way up is the way down. Make yourself a slave of all. Back to Philippians 2, look at verse 8. In verse 8, he says this. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you understand what it means that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death? Because you can't, under, you can't comprehend it with your own life. 
You can't understand what it means that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. And here's why. Because when your time comes, you have no control over that moment. When your time comes, you do not get to stay longer. You don't get to choose, now I will give up my life. But Jesus said this. He said, no one takes my life from me. But I give it up. You see, when Jesus died, he wasn't murdered. That's not why he died. Jesus died because he gave his life up, because his father told him to. You see, at the heart of humbling ourselves is obedience to our heavenly father. And Jesus was a perfect example of that. He was made perfect through obedience. His father said, I need a sacrifice. It needs to be you. And Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. He gave up his life. Are you willing to give up some of your honor, some of your dignity in order to follow your savior to the same place of shame so that you can be effective for his name's sake? Jesus humbled himself. He says he despised the shame, but for the joy that was set before him, he pressed on. The way up is the way down. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. You, you want to be great in God's kingdom, lay your life down here. You can't be great here and there. They're inversely proportional for my math people. You get that. The way up is the way down. Christ won the hearts of men by bearing the humiliation of man before them all. Have you ever thought about that? What was, what was God's cosmic rescue plan? How was Jesus going to be able to attract people to himself? It explains it in John 12, 32. Jesus says this, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. God said, here's the plan. You're going to be crucified and it will draw everyone to you. That doesn't sound like a good plan if you understand crucifixion. Crucifixion was the most shameful death you could die. It was humiliating. If one of your family members was crucified, you can kiss your life goodbye. You wouldn't be able to operate in society anymore because you knew somebody who was crucified. It was the most humiliating death you could experience, hanging naked on a cross in front of people who would mock you as you slowly and painfully die. And God said, that's my plan for drawing the world to myself. You're going to be lifted up from the earth on a cross and that's how I'm going to draw people to myself. Through humiliation. Do you understand that the battle between heaven and fallen angels is one of pride versus humility. Think about it. Think about our enemy. Think about Lucifer, that fallen angel. What is it that he wants? He wants to be first. He wants to be foremost. It's pride that he fights with, that he uses. And Jesus said, here's how I'll beat him. 
I'll humble myself. I will crush his head with humility. That's how his warriors fight. Not by self-promotion and exaltation, but by humility. That's how the battle is won. That's how it will be won. That's how Jesus draws people to himself. And it's how we are going to draw people to him. Think about how Isaiah describes the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, it says this, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This doesn't sound like a good rescue plan. People are fallen. They are sinful. They need their eyes opened. They need to get their eyes off of themselves and on to you. Maybe you should promote yourself a little bit. Maybe you should choose to come in flesh that's attractive. But no, here's God's plan. My son isn't going to have any form or comeliness. He's not going to be attractive to the world. He's going to suffer. Understand this. Jesus did not need to be desired to do his father's work. This is one of the the truths that my father has been bringing home to me. My heavenly father has been teaching me, Caleb, you don't need a reputation to be useful. You don't need men to honor you in order to be effective. My son made himself of no reputation. Jesus did not need to be desired to do his father's work. Jesus could be despised, and successful. Jesus could be rejected and victorious. The way up is the way down. The sorrows of Christ did not derail the work of Christ. Rather, they enabled it. It was this life that made him effective to draw all people to himself. Because there's one who knows our sorrows. There's one who's experienced our pain. There's one who understands me from the deepest places of my heart. See, the call to humble yourself is not to humble yourself by yourself, but it's to come to your Savior and run hard after him. He knows what it is to not hold on to honor, to dignity. He knows what it is to stand with a defense that he could say and to be mute. He understands the way up is the way down. This is how I'll draw all people to myself. I will die the most humiliating death. I will release my right to continue to live for the sake of fallen humanity. And all those who are his Now reflect that same humility to the earth. That's how we're going to win the world. The way up is the way down. But I want to point out to you that in 1 Peter 5, 
Peter doesn't just tell us to humble ourselves blindly. Rather, he says this, humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God. He's not saying, go and jump off that cliff into some unknown briar patch. You know who you believe in. You see, the early church, when they hear that phrase, instantly into their mind would come all of these passages in their Bible that describe the mighty hand of God. They would remember the strong right arm of their Lord delivering his people from Egypt. They would remember his mighty hand parting the Red Sea. They would remember as they entered into the promised land and Jericho was crushed and every enemy was driven out before them. They would remember battle after battle after battle with God's mighty hand rescuing his people. And God, yesterday, today, and forever remains the same. His hand is just as mighty today. And so as you humble yourself, you're not losing your reputation, but you're casting yourself on the everlasting arms of the only one who can truly sustain you. You see, it's not your honor before men that makes you effective. It's God's mighty hand that makes you effective. It's not your reputation or your pride or your honor that enables you to do the work that he's given you to do. It's his power within you that enables you to do what he's called you to do. Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12 that he is not ashamed because he says this, because I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to guard that which has been entrusted to me until that day. Do you know who you believe in? Are you confident that what he's given you, no man can take from you? They can insult you. They can say lies about you. They can not get you. That's okay. Because you know whom you have believed in. And you know he's able to guard what you have entrusted to him. What you've given him, nobody can take away. And he'll guard it until that final day. You see, it's the Lord's sovereignty that emboldens my humility. You might not think that humility is a bold move. It is. It's surrendering reputation and trusting in God as enough. We sing about it, but do you mean it? Is he enough? Can you place all your confidence in him or are you placing your confidence in your own reputation? The way up is the way down. Humble yourself. God will hold you secure. His hand is upon you. Nobody can take you from him. Your most valuable possession will never be removed from you. And so I challenge you today to let go of your self-sovereignty. And entrust yourself to the only one who is truly sovereign under his mighty hand. And there's more. 
There's more to remind you why. It's not just because of his mighty hand. It's so that he may exalt you at the proper time. You humble yourself. You die to yourself. You let go of your dignity, your pride, your reputation. He will exalt you at the proper time. He'll lift you up when you need to be lifted up. He will defend you when you need to be defended. This was constant in Jesus' teaching. The way up is the way down. Humble yourself. Be the servant of all. You want to be great in God's kingdom, then learn to serve. He told many parables where this was the point. I want to point out to one. In Luke 14, verse 7, it says this, he told a parable to those who were invited how he noticed that they chose the best places for themselves. He says this, when you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man and then in humiliation you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see it there again. That's where Peter got it. The one who exalts himself will be humbled the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, you can promote yourself and God will knock you down to size. You can hold on to your dignity, your supposed honor, and God will show you that you have none. Or you can see who you truly are before him. You can recognize that you have nothing to bring to him and he will exalt you and he will lift you up. Now, what this is not saying is that you come in and you see the table and you think, you know, I really do deserve that seat of honor right there because, well, look at me, right? I'm such a great person. Surely these people would want to honor me. So here's what I'll do. I'll go sit in the lowest place and then I'm going to look good. When the master comes in, he, he promotes me. That's what we call false humility. False humility is pride with sheep's clothes on. You get that. That's not what he's talking about right here. What he's talking about is true humility. What he's talking about is you walk in the room and you see the table and you realize, I don't even deserve a place at the table. My place is over here washing the feet of the guests. Sitting at the lowest place is a promotion. You don't even deserve that. And when your master comes in and he takes you by the hand and he leads you higher, you're weeping every step of the way. I don't deserve honor. I don't deserve accolades. I don't deserve this. I don't even deserve the lowest place. You see, the greatest servants of our master, they throw their golden crowns down. Do you remember that? Why? Because it wasn't them. It was never them. It was always him. There's nothing that we do for his kingdom. There's things that he does through us. We don't ever achieve status. We simply depend 
on him. And he works through us. You know, maybe you look at that phrase right there, that he will exalt you at the proper time. And you start thinking, hmm, I wonder what that time is. And there's, there's all sorts of debates about whether this is talking about eternal reward or temporary status. And I would let you know that's the wrong question. You need to ask the right questions of the text. The question isn't when the proper time is. The question is, do you trust God for the proper time? Do you trust God for the proper time? If you're thinking, well, I'll humble himself as long as, you know, he saves my reputation. I would remind you to have your treasure in heaven. Everything here is going to fade away. It's going to tarnish with the using. But what he has reserved in heaven for you is incorruptible and unfading. There's there's nothing that you have here that you can take there. Your heart's desire should be to be exalted forever, not temporarily. Don't seek heaven's reward in your temporary dwelling. God may exalt you at times on this side of the grave, but don't count on it and definitely don't live for it. Rather, humble yourself and he will lift you up. You cannot serve two masters. He'll lift you up at the proper time. The timing of heaven is always perfect. The difference between those who seek the honor of earth and those who seek the honor of heaven is in their willingness to wait. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to wait for him to exalt you? What are you living for? This is a question that... that My heavenly father has been laying on my heart constantly. I constantly ask myself, am I living for the applause of men or the applause of heaven? What's my longing? Is it for people to tell me, good job, good and faithful? Or is it for the only one who matters to say, well done, my good and faithful slave? That's the longing of those whose treasure is in heaven. You see, you can't serve two masters. You can't live for the honor of men and the honor of heaven. You can't seek the applause now and later. This is what Jesus was explaining in John chapter 5. And I want to take you back there. I read 41 through 43. And I want to point out to you. Oh, I already got behind. Sorry. Jesus says this, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is meant to be obvious. You can't believe in him if you're seeking glory from men. If you're living for the applause of earth, you will not be able to believe in God. Jesus said the reason the Pharisees couldn't believe in him is because their entire world revolved around receiving honor from people, being glorified from their fellow man. You cannot live in pride and faith simultaneously. It doesn't 
work. That's not how faith works. Accepting glory from man makes belief impossible. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Andrew Murray. I don't know if you've heard of Andrew Murray. He was a, a minister in um, South Africa. And he wrote a book called Humility. And in that book, he makes this comment. He says that pride renders faith impossible. Pride renders faith impossible. Now, I want to show you why. I'm going to, I'm going to put another quote by Andrew Murray on the screen. I want you to think about these words. He says this, We need only think for a moment what faith is. It is not the confession of... Is it not the confession of nothingness and helplessness, the surrender and the waiting to let God work? Is it not in itself the most humbling thing there can be, the acceptance of our place as dependents who can claim or get or do nothing but what grace bestows? Do you know what faith is? If you understand faith, then you will realize why Humility is central to faith. Learn this. A synonym for faith is dependence. Did you know that? What it means to have faith in God is to depend upon him, to rely on him. And you won't depend upon him when you think yourself dependent. I'm dependable. I can do it. I'm strong, I have skills, I have talents, I have abilities. Why do I need God? The heart of pride says. Pride makes faith impossible. I love this next part of the quote. He says, humility is simply the disposition which prepares the soul for living on trust. Humility is the disposition which prepares the soul for living on trust. You were designed to live a life of dependence upon your heavenly father. And it's humility that gets you ready to do that. Do you remember when you first went to him? What did you hold in your hand? What did you offer to him? Nothing. Nothing. I'm a jar made of clay. I have nothing to offer. Empty-handed, dependent I come, casting myself at your feet. I think that so often we buy into this lie that, that we come to him empty-handed, but then we fill our hands up with things. No, the same way you started, that's how you're going to continue. Having begun in the Spirit, you're going to continue in the Spirit. The first step is in faith, and every step after that is taken in faith. But it's humility that prepares your soul for that faith. Murray goes on and he says this. And every, even the most secret breathing of pride in self-seeking, self-will, self-confidence, or self-exaltation is just the strengthening of that self which cannot enter the kingdom or possess the things of the kingdom because it refuses to allow God to be what he is and must be there the all in all. We have to die to ourselves. So we need to stop feeding ourselves this lie that we're something 
when we're nothing. God cannot be all in all if I think that I am something. I am nothing. I am a slave, an unworthy servant. How could I ever seek glory from man when there's nothing in me to glorify? It's only him. You see, the cry of a child's heart for his heavenly father is, look to him. Forget the channel. See only him. Every slave longs to deflect all eyes to his heavenly father. Do your works before men so they'll see your good works and do what? Turn and glorify your father who is in heaven. I, I think that there is one man who embodies this life of humility. Scripture says that he was the most humble man. Do you know who I'm talking about? He was the first man to ever pen a word of Scripture. God said of him, he is my friend. The most humble man in Scripture is a man named Moses. And in Hebrews 11, it says this about Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. That's one of our clouds of witnesses. Think about it. He has this place of prestige and prominence and honor. Son of Pharaoh. And he says, I want to be called a slave. And he chooses rather to suffer. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. That's what enables you to humble yourself is when you get your eyes off the prize of this life and you look to the reward. And think about Moses' life. Constantly people are misunderstanding him, speaking down about him, not giving him the honor that really he was due. How was he able to endure? He looked to the reward. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, therefore we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the only way we're going to be able to humble ourselves, is if we learn to see what's unseen. This honor from man that we're giving up, it's temporary. But what's unseen, the exaltation that God is going to lift you up to is eternal. I love that phrase in verse 17. This light momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered in the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Absolutely incomparable. Peter closes with this in verse 7. He says, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Peter writes to a church that's suffering and he wants them to learn to live without anxiety. And so he gives three exhortations to the believers. He tells them, first of all, humble 
yourself. And then he reminds them that God will exalt them. And the last thing he says is this, cast your cares on him. Cast your care on him. Now, this verse right here, let me go back. Casting all your cares on him. This, this is a clause. It's not a new sentence. Verse 7 isn't a new sentence. And it's a subordinate clause. In other words, this clause is supporting what he said in verse 6. So verse 6 is the command and verse 7 is the how. I want you to think about that for a second. How we humble ourselves is by casting our cares on him. That's your surrendering control. You're letting go of anxiety. You're throwing it away from yourself. Conversely, worry can be a symptom of pride. Anxiety can be a clue that we are holding on to our own self-sovereignty. I'm worrying about what? What people will think of me. What this will do to my reputation. How people will respect me or honor me. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe I'm just worried because I'm not in control. Humble yourself. That's the cure for anxiety. Are you anxious? Could it be that you're trying to control your own little kingdom? I love this definition of uh, of anxiety that Alistair Begg gives. He says, anxiety is simply trying to care by myself for that which only God can do. Anxiety is trying to care by myself for that which only God can do. You see, anxiety is a symptom of pride. I don't know if you've ever made that connection. God made that connection for me in my heart this year. And I realized that there were all sorts of places where I had strongholds in my own heart that the Spirit has been helping me to cast down. I was going to go to uh, Matthew 6, but we're going to go ahead and skip through that. You can read Matthew 6 later. Jesus teaches us how to cast our cares upon him. I want to point out to you 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says this, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Do you trust your heavenly father? Cast your cares upon him because you know this, he cares for you. Now here's what this does not mean. It doesn't mean that he removes the thorn. Notice what it says. It says, with the temptation, he provides a way of escape. Have you ever thought about that word with right there? With the temptation. In other words, he doesn't provide a way of escape by removing the trial. He doesn't take away the trial. Sometimes he leaves the thorn in. But do you trust him? Do you trust that he cares for you even when the thorn is left stuck firmly in your side? With the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape. Peter wants the believers to learn to live without anxiety. He gives them three exhortations. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. God will exalt you. Cast your cares 
upon him. Each of these is enabled by God's nature. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God is sovereign. You're not. Humble yourself. Under the mighty hand of God, God will exalt you in due time. God's timing is perfect. God is providential. God will exalt you. Cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. God is love. That's your father. How do we do this? We do this by having a prayer life that is constant and consistent, where we discipline ourselves to actively and prayerfully and consistently cast our cares and our worries on the Lord. You'll you'll find yourself needing to do it again and again and again throughout the day. One, One of the things that encourages me is meditating on the words of hymns. I grew up singing hymns. And the words will oftentimes come into my mind in a moment of of struggle. And one of those that that God has been encouraging me with is what a friend we have in Jesus by Joseph Scriven. I would read these words to you. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I want to close with this question. Will you humble yourself and let go of anxiety today? God is sovereign. You can trust him. Don't worry about tomorrow. Lord, we thank you that you have rescued us from ourselves. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves, to recognize where we are holding on to control and reputation. Help us to choose rather to suffer affliction as we look to the reward. I pray, Lord, that in all of this, you might be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.